0: It's my privilege to lead us in the scripture reading this morning. It comes from 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. If you are able, would you stand with me as we read from God's holy word? Please read with me the verses in bold. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I look And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will gi- give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares, the Lord will make will make house. but my step uh, depart from you as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. A uh, little translation issue there. We'll have to check our notes and see about that. I'm glad you're with us this morning. If you're joining us online, welcome. Uh, we are in the middle of a teaching series on the life of David, uh, this uh, Old Testament king who uh, we're told was a man after God's own heart. And today, uh, a really important passage for lots of reasons, in Second Samuel uh, chapter seven. When uh, you know you know you're getting old, when uh, junior high slang doesn't make sense to you anymore. As youth pastors, Olivia and I led a a junior high group and we literally felt like it was part of our job to spend significant uh, time on the clock, trying to remain culturally literate, right? Trying to stay up on the media and stay up on the music and on the people and all the slang that the kids, uh, the students in our junior high group were using and the things that would define their lives. Um, But these days I think I've lost my touch And um, so, for example, uh, one of my kids uh, comes home from snowboarding this past weekend. And when I asked about the day, he said, it was epic. And he and his friends say that a lot. How was it? Epic. (laughs) Um, And I get it. I think I can kind of place that, you know, in context. I think that's a good thing. But when i hear that i wonder if they know that they're talking about poetry right according to the oxford dictionary an epic is a poem the long poem typically one derived from an ancient oral tradition narrating the deeds and adventures of heroic or legendary figures or history or nation (laughs) So Epic, of course, has taken on some several different meanings in our culture, including in describing someone or something that is heroic or majestic or impressively great, like my son and his friends snowboarding. <laughs> Epic has also come to be a term that describes an era or a time period or a specific uh, climactic event in history, right? That, that uh that event captured the spirit uh, of that epic in history. And this morning, as we look at the, uh, the, the seventh chapter of this, the second book of Samuel, I believe we're reading about an epic moment in the life of David. An epic moment, I think, that every person needs to arrive at in their own life and in their own faith and in their own um, pursuit of who God is. But I also think that we're, as we read this passage, we're looking at an epic moment in God's relationship with his people. Uh, A moment that's crucial for us to understand if we are interested in knowing who, we're interested in figuring out who Jesus was, who he understood himself to be, and what he came to do. So let's have a look at an epic moment in David's life and an epic moment in God's relationship with his people. Have you ever looked around at the circumstances of your life? You've ever had a moment where uh, all of your preparations and your plans, the, the things that you had uh, set in motion seemed to be coming to fruition. Things were finally clicking. And uh, you and your accomplishments and uh, your hopes were coming true, and, uh, and you thought to yourself, this is my moment, like I have arrived today, uh, this is my moment to be the hero. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's this kind of moment in the life of David. We've been hearing about his early life, his struggles with Saul, his friendship with Jonathan. But at this moment in David's life, he has survived exile from his home country. He's survived war with surrounding enemies. He's survived repeated assassination attempts from Saul, the king of Israel. Uh, He's Uh, navigated the kidnapping of family members. He's outlived Saul, the first king of Israel, and has become legitimately and publicly crowned king. He has united the tribes of Israel and built a palace in a new capital city of Jerusalem. He has then brought the Ark of the Covenant, which is the sign and symbol of God's presence with his people, into Jerusalem and symbolically and publicly united the power of the king and the blessing of God, declaring that he will be a man that submits to God's law. This is David's moment, his epic moment. Now, according to scholars, every epic poem includes uh, the following four components. First, deeds of superhuman strength and valor, like, I don't know, defeating a giant with a slingshot. Second, a vast setting or storyline like the uniting of divided kingdoms in a place known as the promised land. Third, supernatural or uh, otherworldly forces at work, maybe the strange anointing of a shepherd boy in the corner of a kingdom who does indeed become king. And fourth, a plot, That centers around a hero of unbelievable stature. This is David's moment. This is his moment to be that hero. This is epic. Here's what he proposes in uh, some verses before the passage that we wrote, uh, that we read verses one to three in this chapter. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So essentially, David says to Nathan, who is his, uh, his pastor, his counselor, the, the guy who uh, speaks with God, he essentially says, God has done so much for me. And I want to do something for God. I have a palace. I want to build a temple for God. And remember, he says, I want to build a temple for God because for Israel, even though they have a capital city and he has a palace, worship is still happening in a tent, which sounds familiar. But Nathan, so Nathan, the prophet, his spiritual advisor, Said, he, 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 off the cuff, says, "Well, there certainly isn't anything wrong. Isn't anything wrong with that? Do, do it." And in a sense, he's not wrong. Uh, Nathan's not wrong. There's nothing morally inappropriate about David's, uh, David's suggestion, his hope to build a temple. Uh, it would be a beautiful and sacrificial way to use his new wealth and his new power. But God has other plans why have you ever been in this situation your moment to be the hero to do something truly great and maybe even sacrificial and beautiful and then for no good reason and seemingly no moral or deeply theological purpose your plans are thwarted it doesn't work out you find out that God has other plans While Olivia and I were dating, we wrestled with whether or not to use those three words, I love you. When do you say it? How long is long enough to be dating and then say those things to someone? How do you know it's true? And along the line, I communicated with her that I wasn't going to say those words until I had become convinced that I was saying them to the woman that I wanted to marry. And so the epic moment arrived. I'd spent significant time thinking and praying about it, and had become convinced that it was time to say those three words, I love you. It was a summer night. We were sitting together on a porch swing in a friend's backyard, alone under a magnificent star-lit sky. It was my moment to be a hero. And I turned to her gently and I said, Olivia Johnson, I love you. And at that exact moment, a drunk guy tumbled over the fence into the backyard, <laughs> mumbled some kind of greeting And then ran across the backyard holding up his pants, which were falling down and tumbled over the next fence into the other yard. (laughs) Who's the hero now? (laughs) The story tells us that Nathan goes to bed that same night after giving David this advice. Go ahead and do what you want to do. And Nathan hears from God. In verse 4 of this same chapter, it says, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people? saying, why have you not built me a house? God says, it's a beautiful plan, but it's not my plan. Let's look at what God says next. And I think he makes kind of the same point in two different ways. And this is where we began reading this morning. In verse 8, it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is God's instruction of what Nathan should say, to David, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over all my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. Now, What God communicates in these verses is that only God initiates promises that get kept. It's not the other way around. People, even kings, powerful people like David, don't make deals with God. Anytime there is a relationship in the scripture, anytime there is a relationship between us and God, it's based on God's initiation his promises to us. And the reason is because he's the only one that keeps his word. We don't. I had a conversation just the other day with a neighbor who told me that when he was bedridden and getting ready to go into brain surgery, he promised God that if he survived, he would return to church. And he hasn't been in church in years. Now, I don't doubt the sincerity of the promise that he made but God keeps his word we are not people who sometimes have the ability let alone the desire to keep our promises once they don't serve our purposes any longer There's a vast difference between making some kind of pious deal with God and actually submitting to God's will and his plan for your life. You can make endless deals, uh, even promise to do great things for the Lord and never really see change in your life and in your heart. But if you realize that God initiates and that in fact he has initiated relationship with you, he's come to us in the person of Jesus. If you actually find that you softened your heart and submit your life to God, you'll never be the same. Here's almost the same point put in a different way. In verse 10, God says, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The same point put slightly differently. God, only God provides security. He, Only God can assure the future. People, Even powerful people, even kings like David cannot make plans that are good enough to provide the security and rest that we desire. Because only God knows. Only God controls all that shall come to pass. Many of us say that we believe this. Yes, my future is in God's hands. And yet, uh, our anxiety levels our contingency plans, our insurance policies make it seem like maybe function, we say that that's what we believe, but maybe functionally we think and live our lives in a different way, like it's up to me. My friends, every one of us needs to come to this epic moment in our lives. At This epic moment in our relationship with God when we realize that he does the work. It's his grace that moves things. He initiates, he saves, he holds the future. It's not a, it's not a deal, it's grace. The moment where we realize that God has initiated relationship with us, we didn't find him that he's the only one who will always keep his promises and that he holds our future in his hands. For some of us, this epic moment will come at the bottom of the barrel when everything and everyone has failed us, including our own best plans, have shown to be useless. And and we see that God gives us an opportunity in that moment to take our hands off of our own life and ask him to be our Savior. Maybe that's the kind of epic moment in your life you're in or the the wrestling place that you are with with God and the claims of Christ right now. For some of us, this epic moment will come when we're at the top of our game. And even in the midst of our triumph, we realize that our own plans and our own power continue to fail to give us the security and the rest and the assurance that we so desperately desire. We've accomplished everything and we haven't been free of our anxiety, haven't been free of our fear. And so uh, when we see our own good and even selfless plans cannot save us, uh, we have an epic moment. And this is the moment that David is having, realizing that it doesn't matter how good the plans are if they're not God's plans and realize that God keeps his promises, and God holds the future. And so, this is an epic moment in David's life, one that captures, I think, for us uh, what it means to be a person after God's own heart, and even how David realizes, I think I'm doing this for God, and yet I haven't consulted with God about uh, what he's calling me to do. But it's also an epic moment moment in God's relationship with humanity. This uh, passage is actually epically bigger than anything that will happen in David's life. Anything that will happen for David himself and and even has more to do with building a kingdom that is far vaster than any construction project that he proposes in the city of Jerusalem. This is an epic moment in the history of salvation and it has everything to do with the promise that God makes next. It says in verse, starting in verse 11, moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, contained in that promise are some immediate implications in the life of David. Yes, when he dies, the scriptures tell us that King Solomon, his son, becomes king. And yes, King Solomon will, in fact, build a temple that is uh, epic. And yes, King David's immediate offspring will struggle with their relationships. Some will need to be disciplined uh, by, in God's love and in his discipleship. But this is more than a prediction that it will come true. Right? This is more than a few details that, sh- that are amazing when they come to pass. This is a promise from God that is about something much more larger than who will build the temple. Many commentators call this passage the Davidic covenant. And Daniel used that word when we talked about new members joining and how this isn't a contract, it's a promise. It's a covenant. And to understand what that means, it's helpful to think about the difference between a prediction and how a prediction works and how a promise works. Because a covenant is a promise from God. So prediction is a pretty flat thing. It either comes true or it doesn't. Somebody builds a temple or they don't. And if it doesn't come true, then we say it was either a false prediction or that somebody misunderstood. But a promise is different. It's different because it involves a personal commitment and a relationship. A promise has a dynamic quality that goes beyond whether or not the details and outcomes come out specifically as expected. Think about it this way. When I said I love you to Olivia Johnson in that backyard, eventually when I asked her to marry me, I made a specific promise that you could say came true on our wedding day. I promised um, that I would marry her. But you could also say that that promise had only just begun at that point. We said on that day something like this, we had said, will you marry me? And that promise actually turned into a promise, will you have and will you hold for better or for worse in sickness and in health? And that promise actually turned into, will you hold my hair back while I throw up like my mom did? Or will you work at Starbucks to put me through grad school? And it's the same promise. But it but it's fu- it's fulfilling. in fulfilling it, it takes on different forms and different calls. It calls for different responses in different seasons and life circumstances as they proceed. The promise remains. The, the actual words of what we said to each other don't have to be changed. And, and yet that the relationship dictates how that promise is fulfilled in any given situation. And you could actually say, That with each passing year and each new situation, we actually understand the promise we made once upon a time better and clearer than we did the first time we said it. This is the way God's relationship with his people works in the scriptures. A single promise made almost at the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 3. A single promise to deliver us from our sin and restore us to a relationship with him. Which in different epic moments in history, different epic moments in the scripture becomes clearer. It becomes easier to understand. It becomes more specific and more fully illustrated about what God means when he says that. God said to Eve, after sin had destroyed her and Adam's relationship with God, uh, he says that one day her offspring would crush the head of evil and Satan. Generations later, in the next epic, he says to Abraham, an offspring of Eve, uh, that his name would be great and that his family would inherit the promised land and that through his family the entire world would be blessed. And then generations later, in an epic moment with Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai, they're told that they will be a blessing to the world in the promised land as they become a people who submit to God's design and to his law. And so you can see in this moment with David, it, well, you can see in David the fulfillment of some of those promises, right? He's, uh, he is a dynamic development in this relationship with God. He's famous. His name is great. He has united Israel as one kingdom in the promised land. He's bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem to proclaim that this will be a kingdom that submits to God's law. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's words to David are filled with echoes of these previous epic moments, these promises that he had made to others. God's promise that his name would be great, just like he promised Abraham that his name would be great. That his offspring, that offspring that shall come from his body will inherit the kingdom, just like the offspring promised to Eve. But these words also make it clear that David is not the fulfillment of God's promise. But a son of David will be. A great king who, like David, will unite people from every tribe A king who will never have the spirit of God taken from him because he shall be to God a son. This new Davidic covenant is the latest epic development in how God is communicating what he will do to keep his promise. And it's critical because through it we start to get a glimpse of the fact that God's promise will be fulfilled by an individual, a messianic king. It's critical reading if you want to recognize who Jesus was and who he understood himself to be. He claimed to be, in the New Testament, the son of David. Born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Descended from David's own body. And he let people treat him like a king. They celebrated his arrival in Jerusalem with singing and a parade, just like when David returned from defeating Goliath. But Jesus insisted that his kingdom was not of this world, but a kingdom that would be, as God promised to David, a kingdom that would be established forever. And as the book of Acts says in chapter 13, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus, as he promised. And later in the passage, the writer of the book of Acts says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And justification you were not able to obtain under the law is yours through Christ. I want uh, to identify that the epic moment in history is the moment that the Son of God fully embodied this uh, dynamic promise that God made at the beginning and shows us even more in the life and the covenant of David. The moment when One who was a son of God gave his very life for us that we might be forgiven.